Chinese currency. We're going to talk about it because for a long time it was stable. Too stable, suspiciously stable, says Jeff Snyder, the head of global research for Alhambra Partners, until very recently. And on two specific days in October, the Chinese currency moved. If you don't live in China, if our show is not being seen in China because it's blocked, whatever, China's currency represents more than just what's happening in China. It's a window onto the monetary conditions that affect all of us worldwide. So let's get right into it. Jeff, tell us, first of all, it was a little bit suspicious, and then tell us about the two recent days when something happened. Well, it's like anything else in nature, right? You never want to see a straight line because anytime you see a straight line, that kind of indicates some kind of man-made manipulation. And that's obviously true when you ever look at any market chart, no matter what it is, currency, stock, bonds, anything. There's usually quite a bit of movement, day-to-day movement, even seemingly random movement. Yet for the Chinese currency, CNY, going back to mid-June, kind of suspiciously lack of movement, narrow range, steady narrow range, as if it was being manipulated into in between 650 and 645 on the high side, which kind of raises our radar because we've seen this happen before. And as we talked about previously, the last time we saw it happen before, it didn't really it didn't mean anything good and it didn't end well either. So Chinese currency, lack of volatility, kind of a, a suspicious movements. We're already thinking about manipulation and, and official policy. And then, of course, why would there be an manipulation in official policy that prefers a narrow range for the currency? Jeff, remind me if I have this correct. Now, the first time we, well, we've seen it lots of times, but at least since the zero dollar crises began, I think the first time we saw it was in 2008 or 2009 when the currency went just dead straight. It went dead. It didn't move. It didn't trade seemingly. And then it started to rise afterwards, signaling that the currency and money is being created worldwide. So we thought until about 2014, when it started to wobble, turn down. And then you're referring to the most recent period where in the summer of 2015, I believe, it was again, very suspiciously flat and then it broke lower. And so that's what we were worried about this time, right? It's suspiciously flat because maybe the PBOC is performing things not above the table. It's below the table. They're doing something to keep the currency stable. They're not getting enough money in but they don't want the currency to devalue. Yeah, there's a term for it. And you're right. It goes back to 2008. It's called contingent liability. Although in 2008 and 2009, the Chinese essentially pegged their currency to a specific value, which had which they had been done previous to 2006 anyway. So it was kind of sort of like, okay, maybe they're going back to the same, same policy they had used before. But you're right. Whenever you see that happen, that's a warning sign that something's not going the way it's supposed to. And we start to think about that term of what's going on behind the scenes, stealth intervention is called contingent liabilities. It really means forget it. You're never going to know. The Chinese are never going to tell you. They're never going to report on any kind of form or international data. So we just kind of have to work backward from the starting from the, the, uh, from the realization observation that the Chinese currency isn't moving. So something else is going on. We need to look elsewhere for what that might be. But, you know, as you said before, that kind of changed around uh, October 13th, where suddenly expecting maybe that CNY would become weaker because that's, given, that's, that's usually the trend when one of these, uh, one of these ranges breaks, it, it usually breaks lower. But in this case, it broke higher on October 13th. And then, of course, on October 19th, it went way higher. 
based on, you know, some other things going on that were not related to obviously the prior reign. So in the prior range, the officials in China were buying time because of something. That's something I'm going to say is there was not enough international dollar creation, perhaps by money dealers. And you specify why that may have changed on the 13th and 19th in your, in your article, which is titled, While the Fed Chases the Unemployment Rate, Ticks. Euro dollar deflation case is unusually unambiguous, posted on the 20th of October, 2021 at Alhambra Partners. So what was it that changed specifically on those two particular days? Well, it would be a hell of a coincidence if it was something else. But on October 13th, number one, the Treasury Department announced that they were going, now, now that they're free from the debt ceiling, they've got a couple months reprieve, they're going to start issuing cash management bills in a a bucket load of cash management bills, you know, between 175 and 250 billion of additional bills. And as we've been saying all year, this theme for, you know, the mainstream media's theme for this year has been all wrong, which is kind of the, the point of our, our episode here, which is that, you know, everybody's inflation, too much money, things are going in the right direction. We've been saying right from the start of this year, wait a minute, hold on. This treasury bill scarcity is a problem. And it's going to be continue to be a problem, rising deflationary potential, not inflationary potential. And all the dollar behaviments, movements, whatever you want to call them, all that stuff has been backed up by data as well as we're going to get into here, including this short run deviation, which is the Treasury Department reversing course for the first time this year and saying we're going to issue a lot more bills. That was the 13th. They announced that. And then on the 19th was the first of those actual uh, bill sales, those auctions which was 60 billion and 42 day cash management bills in which, I mean, the demand for them was overwhelming. I think it was something like 182 billion in bids for that 60 billion in cash management bills. So, you know, the huge appetite because again, as we've been saying, this collateral scarcity, which is a deflationary tight money condition that had developed the entire year so far. Now you mentioned one of the reasons right now in your article, you mentioned two. And I'm going to use this opportunity to raise one of my all-time favorite pieces by David Parkins, our illustrator, of Dolly the Sheep, right? If you remember, Dolly the Sheep was cloned, except in this case, it wasn't scientists that had Dolly the Sheep. It was bankers. And what did the bankers do? They put Dolly in the middle of a bunch of mirrors. And they were, these mirrors represented rehypothecation, multiplication, repledging, and that's the other part that was missing, Jeff. Yes, Treasury Department, low supply. But guess what? In an expanding, happy world of economic activity, the money dealers would have stepped in, grabbed what, what collateral there was, and multiplied it. Even if they weren't multiplying it, they were, well, you explained what they would have done. Oh, you just did. I think that's, that's okay, really then. it. I mean, we can get into the complicated details behind it, as we have before, but I think, you know, Right, For the sake of brevity, we'll, we'll just say that the you're, you're absolutely right, because as the Treasury supply of especially bills has been constricted throughout this year, what should have happened, because that represents a profit opportunity for money dealers, is they should have done more reusing, more re-pledging, more rehypothecation to make up that shortfall because there was a profitable opportunity to do so. And that quite clearly, they did not do that. So we, you're right, Emil, we actually have two deflationary problems. One is Treasury supply, which uh, over the last couple of weeks, uh, the Treasury Department has done a little something about, at least for the next couple of months until the debt ceiling comes back into play in December. 
And the other part of that is, which is probably more important, in fact, it really is more important as we've seen consistently through history, is that dealers have been absent from trying to make up this shortfall in supply. Regardless of supply, dealers should be expanding the collateral multiplier, which, which as you said, sort of clones collateral and, and redistributes it throughout the global system. So the lack of dealers doing that contributes to a tight money condition, which we bring this back into the Chinese context. That's one reason why we, we've seen, first of all, the Chinese yuan rise as if you know completely uh, unalterable up until January this year when we started talking about bills and bill supply got restricted. Then it's sort of gone sideways overall for the year. It certainly has stopped rising, but you know, uh, leading to this June to October period where it, it almost traded si directly sideways. So consistent with the overall picture of collateral short T-bell scarcity, lack of dealer uh, activity, multiplication probably didn't happen. That's when we've seen CNY change, which is all of these things indicative of the same thing, which is tightening deflationary potential money. All right, so we've seen that on the graph, that CNY flat, then spike coincides with those particular dates, important dates, meaning a loosening of conditions for some period of time. Now we're going to get into the Treasury International Capital Report, which is the tick in the title of your piece, TIC. We're going to first look at the Chinese situation and then look more broadly, globally, at what official institutions are doing, as well as private actors regarding treasuries as well as other U.S. dollar assets. The Treasury International Capital Report is two months behind, but Jeff, we're looking at right now, what are we looking at? We're looking at Treasury holdings by the Chinese, by the Belgians, and we see that it was what? It, from uh, September 2020 until January 2021, we saw a rise, reflation, reopening. After that, it turned down. Tell us uh, why these charts are important. Yeah, as we expect, just overall sort of general, general tick data interpretation, when we have more money sloshing around through the world because, or at least less constrained money, as the euro dollar system is in reflation, which means there's less of a dollar shortage out there, we expect a couple things to happen as it relates to tick and just in general. There's more dollars around the rest of the world, so we see more dollars end up in these various hands, including U.S. Treasuries, because if there's more dollars out there, uh, more of them end up in the official Chinese pockets, which then get reinvested as reserve assets in U.S. treasuries and other U.S. dollar types of asset classes, which is exactly what the tick data attempts to track. So consistent with not just U.S. treasuries, but all U.S. dollar assets, reflation, more dollars outside the U.S. Therefore, foreigners tend to buy and hold more U.S. treasuries and more U.S. dollar assets. And that's what we saw, as you just said, Emil, from September last year until January this year. A few more treasuries showed up in, in, in um, mainland China's hands and Belgium, but not really all that much. Certainly not, certainly not the same degree as we saw the CNY rise, which went from you know uh, seven twenty to the U.S. dollar all the way up to about six. Uh, what was it? Six forty, six fifty, something like that. Yes. So I mean, CNY went up in a straight line in a, in a to a degree that didn't didn't quite match the little amount of treasuries, a little amount of reflation indicated by the tick data. But regardless, we get to January and something changes. Not only do we have CNY no longer rising in general, now we have U.S. Treasuries starting to trickle out of mainland China as well as Belgium, 
And Belgium, by the way, is just Euroclear, which means China depositing treasuries for these contingent liabilities, derivative transactions, whatever they may be. So Belgium is sort of a proxy, an offshore proxy for what China is doing too, in terms of the tick data. So January, something changes. And that's really the point. And ever since January, not only has CNY changed its behavior, we've also seen these trick, first a trickle of treasuries outside of China and Belgium. Then when we get to when CNY is in its narrow, suspiciously narrow range, where we're almost certain there's contingent liabilities going on, manipulation, what the tick data shows in June, July, and August, we're only up to August in the data, but in June, July, and August is that treasury, the, the trickle of treasuries out of China and Belgium accelerates into not necessarily a deluge or a flood, but it accelerates significantly, which suggests that the Chinese actually were doing something to manipulate CNY to make sure that it didn't fall during that period, which then leads us back to the you know, tightness, global dollar money, uh, you know, collateral issues and things like that. And why might that be important? It's because as the thesis of this show is that uh, this shadow money makes the global economy go round. And in the chart where you show Chinese GDP, we see the inflection happening right at that exact same time, right when the money stopped flowing in so earnestly did we see the Chinese economy start going sideways. And I believe the latest data is along those same lines, right? For August, September, fixed asset investment, retail sales, and uh, industrial production, lousy. But I guess going forward, it may be. It may be better, but before we get to the future, let's talk about what we also saw from other official institutions, not just the Chinese. And so here we have another graph from, from the tick data where it's a six month cumulative change in official holdings of US treasury bonds and notes. And here, let me, I have it highlighted. It says, I need to read this out. It bears repeating official selling is as I described above essentially a consistent historical grounded i'm messing it up jeff jeff you tell us what this graph means then. yeah there's this mainstream misconception that when foreigners especially foreign governments are selling their treasuries because they hate the u.s they hate the president they hate the dollar inflation treasury market's going to blow up. i mean all these things that have been thrown around that are completely falsifiable in fact have been proven they don't match the data which is that when Foreign, especially official institutions, are selling U.S. treasuries as reserve assets. It's because they have a reserve problem, which is a U.S. dollar problem, as we've been saying, tight money. So these two things correlate almost exactly. We see official institutions sell more and more of their reserve assets when there is a dollar shortage position, which makes sense, right? If you're a country and you have a dollar short, which means you need dollars constantly, and the euro dollar market is not supplying them on, at the rate or the cost or in the supply that you need, you have to do something because you need dollars. And so as we just said, the Chinese are selling their treasuries to try to make up for the dollar shortfall, which shows up in the Chinese Yuan acting very differently than it did during reflation Yuan and reflation treasuries. And now we're saying that it wasn't just China, it was, this was a general problem. So there must have been a dollar problem globally, not just in China that forced these reserve managers and these reserve institutions, whether it be central banks or governments around the world, to likewise have to begin selling their treasuries again. Again, it's not because they hate America or the dollar. They're not, they're not afraid the dollar is going to crash. They're not even afraid of inflation. What they're doing is trying to make up for a global dollar shortage, which is the consistent theme in all of the data and all of the market behavior this year. 
So what we see from the tick data in terms of official selling is that in August, for the first time, the six-month cumulative total turned negative, which is throughout the last you know more than half a decade is a significant and solid signal of a dollar shortage situation arising. Not too much money, not inflation, not growth, not acceleration, but the exact opposite. And it's been consistently that way. So officials selling treasuries, mobilizing reserves, the reason for it is not enough dollars globally. We were just talking about official institutions, but you continue to make the point that we saw the same sort of behavior by private market participants. And in the next graph, what we see is public and private combined buying U.S. assets, not just treasuries, you say, but also other assets. What are we to take away from this graph? Con confirmation? Corroboration? Not just confirmation and corroboration, but spilling over wider and wider and wider. See, we started with the narrow sense, you know, it's just China. China's having reserve problems, CNY. Well, no, it's not just China. It's all official reserve sector because they're selling treasuries too. No, oh, by the way, that's not just the official sector. It's also the public sector. When we get to May and July in the tick data, which are negative months for those, as you, as you said, uh, Emil, that's uh, both public and private are selling U.S. dollar assets, not specifically just U.S. treasuries, but all U.S. dollar assets, which is an abnormal behavior that is constantly and consistently associated with dollar shortage periods. So, yes, what we're saying is it started out sort of maybe narrow and over the, the entire year, it's gotten progressively worse and worse and worse to the point that we get to the summertime. It's not just China and it's not just official officials outside of China, but it's pretty much the entire dollar system is saying, as Urgent, Urgent Patel, the former Reserve Bank of India governor said back in 2018, dollar funding has evaporated. I don't think, I think evaporate is probably too strong a term. I still believe that. But Dollar funding is a problem. It is, there's not enough of it. It's causing issues throughout the global monetary system, which is going to be a problem for the global economic system. And as, we said, as I said at the beginning, this is the exact opposite of the theme for this year, which is everywhere else in the mainstream media is all about inflation and too much money. When we have a very consistent, concise, and very neat and tidy package, unambiguous picture of market behavior, uh, data, dollars, economy that all say that the opposite is increasingly becoming the case. You have several very nice summarizing paragraphs in this report, but I don't want to read them out. I encourage the audience to go to this piece and read it themselves. But Jeff, before, I guess now I'm going to ask you for your concluding thoughts, but, and then, well, go, I'm, I'm, out, I'm out of sorts. That's okay, Jeff, because it's an important piece. My thought is whether or not it's own order is this. That was for August. Guess what? The COVID case counts peaked in August, at least the Delta ones. I don't know what Greek letter we're on anymore, Jeff, but I think they peaked in August. Also, U.S. Treasury stopped uh, falling. Yields stopped falling. Prices stopped rising in August. Things have turned around. And now capital markets are saying things are more optimistic going forward. The debt ceiling will be solved. There will be more Treasury bills. The Chinese currency is going up. Glory, hallelujah, Jeff Snyder. I feel very optimistic about the future. We can talk about the future in part two if you have, if you want to, or do you want to summarize anything more about this episode? No, we'll talk about the future in part two, including uh, U.S. Treasury yields and what they mean and uh, other sorts of indications about since, since August, 
what is really going on and what, you know, over the next couple of months, sure, there'll be more treasury bills, but then we have the December debt ceiling come back into play as well as a couple other things, including the growth scare and what that might do in, to offset any supply and treasury bills with what dealers might, might end up doing as far as risk aversion and collateral multipliers and things like that. And we'll look for some clues in the yield curve to tell us what they're thinking already. Let's talk about all that in part two. Also, dear audience, if you know how to do an outro better than I just did, please let me know in the comment section so I can do so better on, on our next episode. Sweet Moses. Ladies and gentlemen, I know that you, like I, often wonder what would a baby look like if the 2013 yield curve met the 2018 yield curve? What kind of baby would they create? This is the question that Jeff Snyder answered in a recent blog post, the head of global research and what, genetic studies of uh, yield curves, Jeff? Jeff, is that us here? I think that's on everybody's mind, right? It's what... What if yield curves have babies? What would they look like? I'm sure that's, that's, that's a thought that's run across everybody's mind at one time or another. And yes, I tried to answer that question. You do answer that question at the end of your article, at the very end. The article is called, The Curve is Missing Something Big. It was posted on the 19th of October, 2021 at Alhambra Investments. The reason it was answered at the very end of the article is because you said, but before we can answer that question, we have to first understand what a yield curve does. And then you said, before we even do that, some recent housekeeping at the front of the curve where Bill lives. Holy wow. Okay. So let us do the bills first. And then what do yield curves mean? And then we'll answer the question about babies and treasury markets. Terrible. Yeah, we're, we're, we're getting off of a topic here, I think. You know, we're going way off, way, way too far afield. So, yeah, the bills, housekeeping, more bills, treasury management, cash management bills are coming. We talked about this in the previous segment, which is, you know, October 13th, October 19th. The Treasury Department is going to start selling cash management bills again after having eliminated most of them uh, starting in the summertime. So there's a little bit loosening of collateral constraints over the recent short run. We'll see how long that continues. But the purpose in going over that is to say we're taught to believe that the short-term interest rates are completely exclusively the purview of the Federal Reserve and monetary policy, when that's not the case, as we've talked about, you know, the relationship between Treasury bill rates and, and the reverse repo rate, for example. We've talked about IOER in the past. In other words, that, you know, even in the short run where the Fed is supposed to be, it's got its thumb on everything, it's really not the case. It's a little bit more complicated than that. Then expanding upon that, what happens when we get further down the yield curve into some of the you know, middle and outer maturities in treasuries and even just debt in particular, which again, we're taught that the Federal Reserve is controlling all interest rates when they're not really controlling every, all the short-term interest rates. What's really going on in longer-term bond yields? The curve is missing something big. That's the mystery we're trying to solve. What is missing? The case of the missing, what? Risk appetite. That's the other thing, Jeff. Yes. The Treasury Department says we're going to create some more Treasury bills for all of you. Guess what? Now it's the money dealers' turn to remultiply, repledge, intermediate this throughout the system. Okay, they may do so for the next few months until December when the next debt ceiling uh, deadline comes up. 
But what is their perception of the long term, the medium term of the economy, the, the monetary order? Will they continue to exhibit the kind of uh, enthusiasm maybe that we've seen over the last few weeks? We're going to answer that at the end. But first, uh, well, let's talk about the yield curve itself. And so you want to teach us the short end, the medium, and then the long term. And then you have a very lovely graph here, uh, a gradient graph that shows just the short, medium, and, and long term and how it's money alternatives versus what at the long end. Yeah, and I think that this is a major problem because number one, first of all, the public by and large only pays attention to the yield curve on very certain occasions when it inverts, like August of 2019, for example. And it's really, they're left with the impression that's the only time you should pay attention to the yield curve as some kind of recession signal. And if it's not that recession inversion signal, who cares, right? I mean, it's, it's, some, it's all the Federal Reserve stuff. And that's just the wrong way to approach this because there's a number, there's a wealth of information in the yield curve that oftentimes has nothing to do with recession or not. Again, it's, it's as you just said, Emil, are dealers taking on risk appetites that would, that would move them and push them to intermediate, not just collateral, but just general money flows all over the world. And so the yield curve is a one way that these money dealers themselves are telling us what they're doing, what their risk appetite is. And so in, in addition to you know in uh, yield curve inversion and, and things like that, you should always pay attention to the yield curve all the time because there's all these sorts of these sorts of nuggets of information, very useful and accurate information that are available to the public in real time. They're again, dealers are telling us what they're doing. So that's number one. And number two, when you look at the yield curve, what we're taught in school and what's reinforced throughout the financial media throughout the rest of your life is that. Again, this is all just the Fed. Don't worry about this stuff. The Fed controls interest rates. In fact, that's what Alan Greenspan had said in 2005 during his infamous conundrum testimony to Congress. He said, look, the yield curve is nothing more than a series of one-year forwards. So we as the Federal Reserve set the first one-year forward at the short run, and all the rest just kind of fall in line. So if we start raising rates and become more hawkish, what we then expect to happen is that the long-term end of the curve just goes up in step with that first short-term rate, a series of one-year forwards. But in 2005 and other episodes for history, but famously in 2005, that wasn't happening. In fact, ever since 2005, in, in a lot of these periods, the, the bond market and the yield curve have, have, have portrayed Greenspan's conundrum, which is that, no, that's not how it works. The yield curve is not a series of one-year forwards. It's, it's actually, especially when you get into the middle of it, it's a blending of often contrary indications and factors that create sort of these twists and turns in the curve which is what we're really talking about here in this episode is looking at these various twists and turns and using them as useful indications of what's going on in the marketplace. These twists and turns, they represent the real economy, right? Alternatives. At the, at the front, we've got money alternatives. The Fed offers some sort of rates and short-term U.S. Treasury yields are an alternative to that. So you have to balance what the Fed offers and money markets offer versus these U.S. Treasury short-term yields very well. But then as you get out further, the twists and turns represent economic opportunity, investment potential. And so that conundrum that we saw in 2005, 6-ish was the market saying, yeah, you're raising rates. We're worried. We're worried about what we see not too far ahead. And if I remember, housing prices peaked in 2006 and people were taking shelter in U.S. Treasury long-term 
liquid U.S. Treasury bonds because they were worried the balance of probabilities was suggesting uh, trouble. You give another example, historical example, the taper tantrum. And we got a graph here. Oh, I guess, so we've got a graph here of the uh, yield curve when we're looking at the, uh, the spread between the 10-year and the five-year. You also show the 10-year and the two-year. Why these particular, particular tenors, Jeff? Well, as you said before, breaking down the yield curve by segment, you see in the front short term, it's more influenced by money alternatives and money rates and money factors, you know, not just today, but in the near term future. You know, the market's saying, OK, rates are going to be X today. They're going to be maybe Y tomorrow. And that kind of influences more the short run. So if we start at the two year treasury, that's sort of a closer to the front end, which is a sort of, OK, what do we think of as a, what's the what's the monetary conditions going to be? What are they going to do as far as interest rates go in the near term? Then the further down your curve you go, as you just said, Emil, we start to get into more inflation and growth expectations. So that by the time you get to the seven and 10 year, it's almost exclusively inflation and growth expectations. So one way you can interpret the yield curve twists and turns is that the long end sort of looks at the front end and says, okay, we think this is going on and this is how it's going to work out in the future. So in 2013, there was no taper tantrum, just like there was never a conundrum. When we interpret the yield curve properly, what we see is that the yield curve said long-term interest rates fell, uh, started to sell off, but they sold off more than short-term rates were, which was the market saying, we like what's going on in the front end, or at least we're not as pessimistic about the front end, the, monetary current, the current monetary condition, as we used to be. And we think that because things look like a little, a little better in money conditions, that there might be a little bit more growth and inflation potential down the road. And so that's the, the yield curve steepening as the long end, which focuses more on you know, risk return characteristics of inflation and growth down the road. That, that became more optimistic because of what was going on in the short end, the yield curve, you see more selling at the long end than the short end, which means the yield curve steepens, which is exactly what we want to see. That was not a taper tantrum. It was the market saying, hey, Ben Bernanke, we actually kind of agree with you for, for, for maybe the first time in a long time. We're thinking that maybe this QE stuff, maybe it did work. Maybe it had a, maybe if, if it didn't work, maybe the chances of it working are a little bit better than they were certainly a couple months ago. So it wasn't a tantrum. It was this curve steepening, which is a positive, optimistic take on the current situation. That's right. Forgive me for not putting scare quotes around tantrum. It was a taper celebration. Bernanke said, we're going to do QE forever. And then a few months later, no, you know what? Things are looking better. It was a celebration. Why would you own U.S. Treasuries if the economy is going to improve? Let's get back out there and invest in the real economy and make some real money, not buy safe assets. Another misconception, Jeff, that stick, is still with us is this, that this was a policy error, right? Uh, they raised rates too fast. Uh, they didn't warn the market in time. The Fed is at the center. And that's what caused this tantrum. Can you tell us about this second misconception about a policy error? Yeah, since we're all told that the Federal Reserve, basically everything runs through the Fed. So the Fed creates both the successes and its own failures in this model because it's always the Fed about everything. Well, that's, of course, not really the case. So what actually happened, I love the way you taper celebration. That's really, I think that's the right way to think about it. And, and that's really what, how, how 2013 should be uh, should be thought of. It was a taper celebration. Unfortunately, it was very short-lived. 
In Eurodollar futures, it only lasted four months. And even in the treasury curve, the steepening only lasted about seven months, which is an incredibly short period of time when interest rates are incredibly low to begin with. So the taper celebrations were short-lived because the market started, as soon as we got to 2014, the market started to say, ooh, maybe not. Maybe we were getting a little bit too ahead of ourselves, too premature in our celebration, because we're starting to see more warning signs than positive signs. So again, translating the short-run monetary conditions to the prism of economic and growth expectations, you started to see more buying in the long end, even as short-term rates were still rising a little bit in the two-year, and the five-year Treasury rates sort of stopped rising and didn't fall either. So from 2014 forward, the yield curve started to flatten, which was an ominous sign of rising deflationary potential. The market saying, we're actually becoming less positive about growth and inflation even at the same time as the Federal Reserve was becoming more confident in its hawkishness, its tapering, and then terminating QE, and then rate hikes that were supposed to begin in 2015. So the market, the yield curve was twisting and turning, saying, yeah, we think the Fed is going to remain hawkish, but we also believe that the marketplace, the actual economy, economic conditions, growth and inflation are not what the Fed thinks it is at all. And so that flattened the curve. And what a lot of people then say is, well, that's just the Fed tightened too soon. And that is a policy error. They, they should have let QE run farther. They should have gone, you know, they should have waited on rate hikes. They should have changed their Delphic forward, forward guidance to, to more Odyssean forward guidance and all this nonsense, which is really, this, it's really, it's, 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 it gets into this mess about what monetary policy actually is. And it has, it's really about no money. It's all about expectations. But what the market was saying is, Essentially, the flattening curve of 2014 was the Fed is wrong. The Fed is becoming hawkish. Not that it matters that the Fed is hawkish, but the Fed is becoming, you know, the higher short-term rate potential for reasons that have nothing to do with reality. And that's the flattening the curve, the ominous signal that the Fed is making a mistake. It's a mistake of prediction, not one of policy. That's right. I was thinking of when did they actually raise rates? 2015? Right? The first, once, yeah, December and then once again, was the first one. That remember too, that, soon, you know, too soon, Jeff. Too soon. One interest rate like, spoiled everything, right? <laughs> it's, it's, it's a ridiculous. And that's after seven years of a zero interest rate policy. So we, we obviously needed a couple more years of accommodative policy. To, I mean, at some point, you just have to laugh at how absurd all this stuff is. And, but that's, again, that's why you pay attention to these market signals. You know, you don't pay attention to the yield curve only when it inverts. You pay attention to the yield curve all the time because it has all of this information. So from the first day of trading in 2014, the yield curve was telling you the Fed was making a mistake. Deflationary potential, not inflation, was rising. The economy was falling off. There was a greater chance of a dollar problem arising than there was of recovery. And by the way, that was what actually happened. The, Fed, the uh, yield curve, rather than the Fed's models, the yield curve is a much better predictor of the way things are going to go, especially as it relates to growth and inflation. So if the yield curve starts to flatten out, even if short-term rates start to rise in anticipation of the Federal Reserve's actions, that is the bond, that's not a conundrum. It's the bond market saying, we see the Fed going to do what it's going to do, but we think they're absolutely wrong. Again, the only reason you call it a conundrum is if you believe the Fed is infallible. Okay, May 2013, Bernanke, taper. It wasn't a taper tantrum, it was a taper celebration. The markets threw a ticker tape parade, moved forward eight years, 
The markets once again threw a ticker tape parade. But Jeff, and, and people will say, yeah, because of the taper. No, as these graphs show, now we're looking again at the, the spread, 10-year, 5-year, 10-year to the 2-year. The celebration, the ticker tape parade occurred for the reopening, the, the end of the COVIDs, right? And then it, oh, well, kind of the end, whatever. I don't even know what epsilon version we are on the, on the variants. But the, the celebration did take place and we can see it. The spreads widen just like before. And then they stop widening. I guess that's the point of your article, Jeff, is the taper's been announced. Is the yield curve steepening now, celebrating as we dive nude into the pool, yelling cannonball, economy? No. Yeah, celebration was January, February, and into March, right? That's when the yield curve steepened again like it had during the taper celebration of 2013. That was the market saying there's vaccines, there's possibly an end to the pandemic, there's all this Uncle Sam deposits going around, stimulus, whatever you want to call it. All of these really wonderful things. Maybe, just maybe, there's a small chance, a better chance, that the awfulness of the past year or the past, you know, twelve years, maybe those are those are behind us, and we're actually moving into a much, well, not much better, but a slightly better chance of inflation and growth down the road. That was the steepening yield curve. That was nominal rates rising. But as you said, Emil, something changed, and it changed in the middle of March, and it ever since then. First, nominal rates started to fall back again, which caught people completely off guard because they're thinking inflation is only going to get worse, not, not lower. And then since August, nominal rates have been rising again, but not in the same way at all as they had been doing earlier in the year. Nominal rates going up now is all about stuff at the short end, whereas nominal rates going up during that reflationary period early in the year, in the year were all about the long end, steepening growth and inflation expectations. And so what has changed since March through both first lower yields and now, now slightly rising yields again, retracing yields again, is that ever since March, the yield curve has flattened and has continued to flatten as, as interest rates have risen since August because it's exactly the same kind of situation as 2014, where the market is saying, yes, we see that Jay Powell is going to taper QE and maybe even get to some rate hikes. The Fed is becoming more hawkish, which will have an, a rising influence on the shorter end. But we disagree that the, the, the reasons for the Fed becoming hawkish, we don't think the economy is improving. In fact, we think there's rising danger, deflationary dangers, growth scare, global slowdown, as well as T-built problems, monetary factors, dealer risk aversion, any number of things. So the, 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 the long end of the yield curve is saying, we don't agree with why the Fed is being hawkish, even as we acknowledge the Fed is becoming hawkish. And so it becomes a very eerily similar situation to not just 2014, but also 2018, when the Fed actually was raising rates and the, and the yield curve behaved in exactly the same way. Nominal yields rose at the 10-year and the five-year, but they got squeezed. Those calendar spreads got squeezed. The yield curve flattened, which was a signal throughout 2018 that told you not inflation, not growth, not acceleration, not uh, not an abundance of actual effective money. In fact, the opposite of all of those things. So to see those things developed in the in, from March of 2021 forward and continue as nominal rates are rising during this quote unquote taper period, it's we're back to a it's not the tantrum that everybody thought in 2013. 
is certainly not the taper celebration, which would have been a more accurate term. It's a taper something else, a taper rejection, I guess. I, I don't know. You Maybe you can come up with a better term. Well, we don't have to because David Parkins illustrated for us Mr. J. Powell in a beautiful limousine going down the canyons of Wall Street celebrating the taper. And then there's we see a single piece of taper bouncing off his head in the form of a toilet roll. Thank you very much, David Parkins. Jeff, we're going to answer the question at the beginning of your article now. And that is about baby making, of course. Uh, you know, a lot of people don't know this, but fertility rates were rising across a number of advanced economies heading into 2008. People think, oh, you know, that that was actually on a continuous downtrend. Not true. It was rising, depending on the country, for many, many years. 2008 happens. No, starts falling and it has never recovered since 2008. I think it's people saying, voting, uh, importantly, about the state of the global economy, no matter what they hear in the media. Same thing happened with 2021. All the lockdowns, there were expectations from experts that there would be a mini baby boom. Guess what? Absolutely not. Why? We know why. It's lousy out there. Lousy. Uncertainty is so high after so many years. All right, that's my very depressing lead-in to a very happy baby-making where you ask, what would, a, what would happen if 2013 yield curve met 2018 yield curve? What would they produce? It would produce the demon spawn that is the 2021 <laughs> yield curve. Yes, yes. Which is, look, if, if inflation and growth and everything was supposed, if everything was positive and things were uh, moving in the right direction, even modestly in the right direction, we would not see the curve flattening as we have consistently, whether nominal rates are rising or falling since March. So what is that, almost 10 months of this, which I think is a fairly uh, pretty conclusive uh, non-random sample that says the market is telling you in the yield curve pretty much what you, the background that you need to know about what's actually happening this year, which is not the inflationary theme that the mainstream media has run away with. It's actually growing concern, angst, and as to your point, on the ground conditions that are not conducive to anything good going forward. We're going to talk about stagflation, inflation, superinflation, the great inflation of the 1970s. Jeff, you wrote an article about a week ago at Real Clear Markets about Richard Nixon, secret tapes, meetings with the Federal Reserve Chairman, and the budget manager of the OM, what was it, the Office of the Management of the Budgets of Money of Something of Something. It's on tape. You wrote about it. We're going to talk about what we heard and whether or not we can learn anything from the great inflation of the 1970s to present day. The 1970s, the great inflation. Jeff Snyder, the head of global research for Alhambra Partners, said, you know what? I'm not doing anything this weekend. Why don't I go and read the Federal Open Market Committee transcripts, memoranda, and get a sense of what people were thinking at the time, as well as listen or read the transcripts of those famous Nixon tapes. Jeff, you'd set the scene in this article, which by the way, you can find at Real Clear Markets, everyone. It was posted on the 15th of October, 2021. The title is The Power of Money Lurks in the Shadows. Jeff, you tell us right up front that 1970, there was a recession, unemployment, 
and therefore you should expect to see inflation uh, low because there's a lot of slack in the economy, but we didn't see that. That was what you, that's what everybody did expect at the time. We had a pretty, pretty nasty recession starting December of 69, lasting until November of 1970. And through that recession, you would expect, you know, as you said, slack, resources, unemployment, all the usual problems that are consistent with recession should be, especially in any kind of Phillips curve conception, we should see a slackening of inflation, which did not happen. In fact, it was quite the opposite. Inflation was painfully consistent throughout the recession and its aftermath, despite the fact that more were unemployed and economic activity had fallen off dramatically, which was quite concerning and quite shocking to not just economists and politicians, but central bankers too, because when we're talking about inflation, we're already in their domain. At least we should be in their domain. We refer to it as the great inflation of the 1970s, but the inflation began before. I Tell me, is it 1965 or 1968 to 1981 where the great inflation took place? What, what's it started the, around 65, but it really became serious around 68. So, I mean, you can date it however you want. To me, for me, it's 65 to about 82. Um, some people say 68 to 80. It's, it's really in that range where, again, inflation behaved regardless of economic behaved in a certain way, regardless of economic circumstances, which everybody just started scratching their heads trying to figure out how this could possibly be. Now, we, with the benefit of uh, hindsight, say that it is because private enterprise, private banks began to work around the regulations that were in place at the time because they saw opportunity, money to be made, and they started creating new forms of money that were not captured by the Federal Reserve and the various metrics. That's why we believe that happened. But at the time, people were not clued in on that. Tell us about a meeting between... I'm not sure anybody's clued in on it today either. <laughs> I think you, know, that's the... you and I are using hindsight, using the euro dollar lens and thinking about that. Yeah, that's... We look at it as monetary evolution that was a, played a huge role in great inflation, but I'm pretty sure that that's not the conventional explanation. Conventional explanation is all off in la-la land, as it was at the time. And remember, we talked about August 1971, back when it was the 50th anniversary of August 71, earlier this August, when, if you remember August 15, 1971, or you just look back on what happened August 15, 1971, everybody says, oh, that's when they stopped gold convertibility of the dollar. That was sort of an afterthought. What Nixon and his administration really did was they confronted this great inflation that had just gone through a nasty recession without being deterred at all. They thought, well, what the hell's going on here? We need to do something. And they said, well, let's, let's control wages. Let's control prices. We'll set up wage and prices boards throughout the country. We'll staff them with these eminent economists. And they'll, if, you want to, if you want a pay raise, if a union wants to argue for a pay raise, they got to get permission from the government first. And that will stop inflation. So that's really what happened in August 1971 was the government took a top-down macroeconomic approach because they believed, as, as these uh, Oval Office tapes make plain, that the, as using President Nixon's very own words, the liquidity explanation was bullshit. That's what the guy said. That's what Nixon actually said on the tape, which was saying, look, inflation is a monetary phenomenon. And in the early 1970s, they thought, well, how could it be a monetary phenomenon? Because the money we look at doesn't look inflationary. And the money they looked at was M1. And so you can see why Nixon in 71 said, first of all, the, the liquidity explanation was bullshit because M1 didn't seem to make it look like inflation was going to be as bad as it was. 
And so if you thought that, then you would in August of 1971 would, would turn from, you know, you wouldn't blame the central bank. You would say, well, money supply looks fine. Let's start controlling wages and prices and let's blame unions and let's blame workers for these problems because it doesn't look like the monetary explanation holds water here. Even though the Federal Reserve Chairman Arthur Burns at the time said, something serious is going on here. Economics itself seems to be breaking down because we expected in the recession of 69 and 70, inflation would tail off and it didn't. So we're missing something big. And that's really when this really where this story really starts to get interesting as well as applicable to the current age. That's right. October 1971, President Nixon, Chairman Burns, and the Office of Management and Budget Director George Schultz were together. And to your point, the president used salty language regarding the possibility that it could be liquidity, too much of that. No, we move forward. Now it's February 1972. The administration is still blaming macroeconomic fa factors, unions, price increases. Uh, but Burns is maybe not thinking He's having a change of heart. Milton Friedman wrote a paper. Maybe M2 is more important. He presented that to the president. And the, did they decide to look into M2? Was no, it's, it, look, 1972, you also have to remember, was an election year. And you have to also have to remember something about the Nixon and Nixon administration, which was he blamed the Fed for his loss in 1960 when there was a double dip recession, 58 and then 60. And then there was that close election to John F. Kennedy, which he thought, damn, the Fed screwed him. And, you know, the, they, they tightened the money supply when they didn't really need to. And that cost him the election. So 1972, Nixon and Schultz and all the rest of his cronies were very much in favor of the Federal Reserve going full bore with money supply. Because, number one, it didn't look like the money supply was growing as it should. And it didn't look like the money supply was responsible for inflation. And he was, you know, there's no way he was going to let the Fed cost him another election. So they were prodding and, 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 you know, coercing and talking about, you know, packing the Federal Reserve Board with uh, more Nixon uh, allies, all these all sorts of things to try to get the message to Arthur Burns, hey, go full bore with, with accommodative money supply policies, because at least until April or May of 72, when by then the election would be secured. So... Arthur Burns was saying, wait a minute here, hold on here. Well, let's, let's not discount the money, ex the money explanation completely because it looks like a money explanation, number one. And number two, we're starting to get some, some scholarship and some hints and allegations that the M1 that we rely on maybe not be reliable. And that was the, the uh, paper that Milton Friedman had written in, uh, I think it was late 71, that said, we got to stop using M1. We got to start moving toward M2. And as I, as you and I have pointed out throughout many times, Emil, the FOMC at that time were having the same discussions about how M1 was becoming obsolete anyway. So you have lots of staff presentations. You have a lot of academic literature saying, hold up on, on, on writing off the monetary explanation for the great inflation. We maybe we don't even know what we don't know yet. So that's why uh, Arthur Burns was wavering and why the president was saying, we don't, I don't care about this stuff. I want you guys to, I want the Federal Reserve as accommodative as possible. The FOMC was having discussions about M1, M2 at that time again, because they first considered it a decade earlier, didn't they, Jeff? To investigate it. 61, 62, let's come up with a new measure. Am I right? That's when they came up with M1 and started to think about money, monetary terms more broadly, which then they settled into M1 
in particular, even though there was M2, but M2 was sort of a, you know, that's that's the the one that they kind of set aside and didn't really pay much attention to because they thought M1 monetary correlations, specifically demand for M1 uh, functions, seemed to work well up until around the late 60s and especially this the recession of 1970, which then gets into Arthur Burns' point where he testified in front of Congress and said, it looks like economics itself is breaking down because the last couple of years just don't make sense. That's an actual quote, ladies and gentlemen, that you can find in this article. Economics is breaking down. Jeff's not ad-libbing. That's what the chairman said. We move forward a few more years. Now it's January 1974, and I'm going to read a quote by Federal Reserve Board member John Sheehan. And ladies and gentlemen, the key word, the key word I want you to pay attention to is the very last word of this paragraph. Looking back over the two years that he had been a member of the committee, he, Sheehan, so I guess this is a memorandum, so it's not his quote verbatim, did not feel that the system had made a significant contribution to inflation. No, no. The rise in prices had resulted much more from spe such special factors as the devaluations and supply problems affecting foods and fuels than from an overly expansive monetary policy. And I didn't catch that at first, Jeff, but you say, yeah, yeah, that's right. He's right, but he's also missing the big picture. Yeah, he's, he's using the Nixon argument, right? Which is, we look at M1, and by M1 and our policies that are based on M1, the great inflation must be for some other reason. And I agree with him. He's absolutely right. Their M1 policy had very little to do with the great inflation, except in that it didn't, it didn't get in the way of the other monetary expansions that were taking place, which was supposed to be what policy was about. In other words, policy at that time was irrelevant. It wasn't wage and price controls. It wasn't supply factors. It was you guys were looking at M1 when you should have been looking at money differently. So monetary policy was irrelevant to the great inflation. It was because monetary policy didn't consider what commercial banks were doing globally, expanding the definitions and uses of effective money in ways that policymakers not only just failed to catch up with, they failed to understand, they failed to measure all those things. They failed to account for money itself during this great inflationary period. We're moving forward a couple more years. January 1976. This time, this uh, quote comes from a future FOMC board member, Lilo Gramley, at the time he was a staff economist. And here he is saying that what we would expect is for M1 to be growing at 8.5% to account for the level of economic activity we're seeing. But in fact, it's only grown at four and a quarter percent. Why did you include this particular quote? Yeah, money demand is how they, they, look, they look at the money supply or they, they how to look at monetary conditions and try to make sense of them. So what they're saying is, look, this is 1974, 75, we're getting into the middle 70s and inflation is just not letting up. It's continuing to go. We tried, we experimented with wage and price controls and other things, macroeconomic policies earlier in the 70s, they had no effect whatsoever. We're starting to get the sense this really is a monetary problem. And we've been focused exclusively on M1. We told the President Nixon to focus exclusively on M1, which kind of maybe fooled ourselves into thinking there was no monetary behavior. But when we, put, when we start to add all of these things up, it just, it does not add up. The money demand function says that M1 growth should have been twice almost twice the rate as what it actually did in order to in order to make sense of 
uh, nominal GDP growth and interest rates and inflation and everything else. So what they're saying is, look, it has to be the situation where our view of money is wrong because the economy is doing other things. The demand for M1, the actual demand for M1 was so low because the economy was using other forms of money that were not included in M1. So demand for non-M1 money must have been through the roof, off the charts. And if you don't consider this and you're only looking at M1 and M1 and demand for M1, you fooled yourself into thinking the great inflation is something that it isn't. And that's what they were starting to say in the middle 1970s, like, holy crap, we're a decade into this and we're starting, we're just now starting to believe because it's becoming too much to ignore, to dismiss and to try to otherwise explain that, yeah, maybe we should take this monetary evolution stuff seriously because M1 is leading us way astray. And by focusing exclusively on that, or even M2, it's leading us to these wrong conclusions, wrong policies, and therefore allowing commercial bank monetary explosion to take place without any constraints or checks upon it. And maybe that explains the great inflation far better than anything we've offered so far. Quote by Jeff Snyder, quite simply, during the great inflation, the U.S. and global economy had progressively turned to other kinds of money beyond the reach, even conception, of the Federal Reserve. Well, that's continued to present day, hasn't it, Jeff? Jeff, I that's segue really why to we, the... Yeah, that's why we're bringing this up now is because it's, it's, it's almost a perfect parallel to not just 2021, but the entire you know, last couple of decades where the same thing has happened. The Federal Reserve is not a monetary expert. In fact, ever since the 1970s, they said we don't need to be monetary experts because we can't be. We can't keep up with commercial banks. So we have a now, now we have since 2007... We have another monetary problem that the Fed is ill-equipped to handle, except this time it's not too much commercial bank money, it's too little. And now exactly parallel, the Federal Reserve is leading the public into thinking all these other problems, you know, we talk about the lazy Americans and our star and all these other things, anything to avoid having to admit that the last, this, this last decade plus of disinflation or deflation around the world is a monetary phenomenon when it absolutely is. Again, we talk about the interest rate fallacy, all the signs and signals that say it is a monetary problem that were evident in the 1970s as an inflationary problem. We have the same issue today where the Fed doesn't do and can't do what everybody thinks it should do because it doesn't understand money. It didn't understand money in the 1970s. It doesn't understand money today. And if we have a monetary problem, what do we do? We're kind of stuck. Just like the 1970s, where we were stuck with the inflation that was going on then, we're in the, in the 2010s and now 2020s, stuck with a disinflationary, deflationary problem. But the Fed isn't going to change, regardless of what happened earlier this year with consumer prices. The monetary background is the same either way. The Fed just doesn't really matter. As, as Mr. Sheehan was saying, we don't blame monetary policy here because monetary policy is, is mistaken and irrelevant. Ladies and gentlemen, Jeff just mentioned disinflationary, deflationary pressures, and maybe you're scrunching your face, giving him the evil eye, the stink eye. How In a previous episode, we talked about how the recent month-over-month -month measures, a number of them, different various measures of inflation, are reading as they did normally before the coronavirus struck. They're at normal levels. So, Jeff, looking forward, is there... Where are we now, just looking forward over the next few months? It seems like we've got 
treasury bills coming back into the system that releases a pressure valve, but inflation is not accelerating, uh, price increases are not accelerating, uh, government stimulus checks are not coming, the Federal Reserve is still doing the same old, same old. So I suppose next few months, weeks, months or so will be less worse than what we saw in the summer of 2021, but we're still stuck in the same maybe 2018, 2019 doldrums of economic activity in the new year. At least that's kind of my outlook. Is there, what do you see for the next few months or do you have any concluding thoughts for, for this whole episode? Yeah, the, the lesson of the great inflation is that with it all depends on the monetary background. What is the monetary system doing? In the 1970s, regardless of what the Fed was doing, the commercial banking system was doing inflationary money. Therefore, there was an, an unbreakable, unrelenting, recessions couldn't even dent this. There was unrelenting inflationary pressures throughout. Flip side of that in the 2010s, the post-2008 environment, you've got commercial banks who don't want to do money. They don't want to do things. So you have disinflationary, disinflation or deflationary background which is kind of, it doesn't matter what monetary policy does, QE, tapering QE, level of bank reserves. It's all about the commercial banking system. So yes, even though consumer prices spiked earlier in this year, it wasn't because of money. It wasn't because of money printing. It certainly wasn't because of QE or monetary policy. It must have been for other reasons. And we know what those reasons were. As you just, you just mentioned several of them, Uncle Sam, um, you know, uh, supply bottlenecks, those kinds of things that for a couple months, Prices really did spike, but without the monetary component to it, it's not really inflation. It's something else. It was, you know, a temporary transitory factors combined to, to hit consumer prices. And ever since then, it was around April and May, not only have we seen consumer price indices start to decelerate, we've also seen, as we talked about before, twists and turns in the yield curve, which even though nominal interest rates are rising, which may seem, may sound like a positive signal, the fact that the, the yield curve is twisting into a flattening sort of contortion, that sort of is a negative signal that's consistent with falling inflation, falling growth expectations, which is, hey, we're still in this same disinflationary, deflationary rut, and you can't rely on central bankers and federal reserves to tell you what's going on, because ever, like the 1970s, they have no idea either. In uh, episode 129, dear ladies and gentlemen, we talked about what banks are doing. Earlier, Jeff mentioned bank credit creation is the key here. And we talked about it. And there was even an article, Jeff, that you wrote that was called, Until This Changes, I Don't Expect Any Change. And we talked about what US banks have done for the first uh, six months of this year. And what they've done, Cliff Notes version is they've taken on tremendous amounts of assets. Fantastic. Except they're all very, 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 very safe assets. And actual net loans, the stuff we need to the real economy went negative. So not going anywhere anytime soon, I guess. Jeff, I enjoyed it very much. I'll talk to you again next week, or maybe not next week. I'm actually going to have to take a break next week, Jeff. Yeah, you enjoy your vacation, and we'll, we'll, we'll worry about the uh, yield curve contortions and yield curves having babies and clone <laughs> sheep and all the other stuff we've talked about this episode. We'll set those things aside for a week and come back at it a couple weeks from now. I need to get a hold of myself so I can enunciate, pronounce, and not bring up Yield curves having babies. All right, good luck to the Buffalo Bills this week, uh, Jeff. Or are they on bye week? Who are bye they playing? Bye week this week, and they need it. 
I am so out of it. I don't even know who's playing it. Oh, God. All right. Thank you, Jeff. Talk to you soon. All right. Take care, Emil.